Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Please help me welcome our speaker tonight, Sarah, from Ninjas in Recovery in Manhattan, New York, New York. Come on up, Sarah. Sarah, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, I feel like I should do some like ninja stuff. I may rip dress. Um, I haven't thought really about what I was going to say at all because like you're not supposed to, but now I'm feeling like I probably should have thought a little bit about what I wanted to say. Um, you guys want to pray? All right, God, I need you. <laughs> we need you. Um, I invite you into this meeting. Uh, to just bring light and truth where there is darkness and fear. And I pray that my self-will would stay out of this <laughs> and uh, that I would just have the inspiration that I need to touch the people here. Thank you for Alcoholics Anonymous and beautiful way of living. May we all feel as close to you as we really are. Amen. Amen. My heart is beating so fast. Um, So, yeah, my sobriety date is January 10th of 2005. And, you know, the story that I've come here to share with you guys is really my process of how I went from a place of disconnected from a power that I needed to live to a place of connected um, to a place where I can maintain connection and grow spiritually a day at a time with all of you together. So um i'm an alcoholic and i didn't really understand what that meant for a really long time and i'm sure that there's people in this room that can relate to that um when i'm when i say that i'm an alcoholic it means some very specific things and um the first thing that it means is that i have an allergy to alcohol um i have an abnormal reaction to alcohol called the phenomenon of craving um which in our big book alcoholics anonymous Uh, There's a chapter called The Doctor's Opinion, and that is the doctor's opinion, that alcoholics suffer from an allergy. And he describes what happens is when we start drinking, we get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. Now, I got sober when I was 15 years old, and uh, I didn't really have the experience of, like, trying to sit down and do controlled you know, normal drinking, you know what I mean? Like, I was pretty much still in that place where I was I was ready, willing, and able to get as drunk as I possibly could all the time. Um, but the way that I experienced the phenomenon of craving was I would set out to get drunk, and I would be sitting there on the staircase of Douglas Projects on 101st Street in Amsterdam, so drunk that I couldn't actually get up off the stairs, and a panic would set in that it was going to wear off soon, and I felt an overwhelming desire to drink more alcohol. I needed to put more alcohol into my body. You know, it's like that finish line extended itself, and I would drink and drink and drink until I could not drink anymore. And that's how I experienced this thing of losing control over the amount of alcohol that I'm drinking, you know. Um, But if that was really my problem, like the logical thing is like, well, then don't start. So what is going on in sober Sarah that makes her continue continuously over and over and over again, despite all evidence to the contrary, believe that it is a good idea for her to put another first drink into her body to create the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever I could. Usually it was like 40s. I drink, I like malt liquor. That's what I could get at 14 years old on Amsterdam Avenue in New York City. That or vodka, which I would just hold my breath and get it down. Um, and uh, so it's like, it's like it's like more than that, you know what I mean? Like, if I had the power to not put that first drink into my body, I would have not put it there, you know? So there's something else going on, this whole thing of what does it mean to be an alcoholic, which really means, you know, alcoholics are powerless over alcohol. And that starts before there's any alcohol in my body at all, you know? It's, a, it's an insanity of the mind. It's a strange mental twist that I have. Um, <clears throat> so just backpedaling a couple things, um, the real problem, it's like I'm sober every time I put that first drink into my body. The real problem is like my condition when I'm sober. It's my, it's my, spiritual, it's my spiritual condition in my skin when absolutely nothing is in me yet. And, um, and it's not good. <laughs> Just like this talk is not going to be any good. It's not good <laughs> when, I, 
<laughs> when I'm sober, I have this thing that I've been taught. It's also called a spiritual malady, and it's this illusion that I'm disconnected from God, which, by the way, I didn't realize that I never was. It wasn't until I heard Scott, I think, share from Feet First talking about an old idea of the God-sized hole, and I thought about that, and then I started working with a new sponsor in, um, I think, November, and and this gentleman um, told me that really there was no God-sized hole, that there had never actually been anything wrong with me, and my only problem ever uh, was that I thought that I had a problem. And the 12 steps have gotten me closer and closer to this realization that I really don't have any problem. Like, I really am okay. I'm safe. It's all being taken care of. And for, for an alcoholic like me, it's, that's so important because um, I need this program so bad, sober, so that way I don't get to the place where I start thinking that a drink is going to fix the way that I feel in my skin. Because for an alcoholic like me, this world and this life will chew me up and spit me out. <laughs> I don't do well. I don't play well with others. I don't live well. Everything's all about me all the time. I'm extremely fearful. Do you know what I mean? There's all these, like, levels. Like, I don't know. I have this, like, crazy mind that doesn't enable me to just, you know, wake up in the morning, feel good, put on my makeup, look forward to the day. Like, I need a tremendous amount of help. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get to that place where I can just like be sober, basic human being and like show up for the day ahead and like be kind and considerate and loving and thoughtful. Like I need a tremendous amount of help from you guys and God and I need to consciously give you the best help that I can give you on a daily basis in order for, for me to also reap those benefits. So I'm extremely grateful for this program. And, um, back to the spiritual malady thing that I'm talking about, which I'm kind of all over the place with is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent is like the way that our literature puts it. And my mind tells me that the ease and comfort, which comes from a couple drinks, is going to fix that. So here I am, absolutely miserable, absolutely terrified, first grade. And the boy that I have a crush on doesn't like me back because I'm not as good as the other girls. And I'm pissed off at my mom because she wouldn't let me have school, uh, public school lunches. And she made me take, I don't know, tomato and tuna fish sandwiches. And I mean, I like tomato and tuna fish sandwiches fine, you know, like they, they taste good, but it wasn't what everyone else was having. So it wasn't good enough. And, you know, I'm not the right skin color and I'm not the right anything. And, and I, here I am full of self-pity, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And first grade, I'm six years old. <laughs> My life is totally unmanageable. I'm a wreck. <laughs> I don't even want to live anymore. You know, it's done. I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, thank God that I that I found alcohol eventually because it really is like that's where I start and I have a mind you know this mental obsession this strange mental twist you know tells me that a drink is going to make that better and if I do not have a god of my understanding working in and through me I will believe the lie every time it doesn't matter how much evidence I have of how bad the last time I got drunk was or how sick I felt or how deeply it is going to hurt my mother and father whom I love it doesn't matter if I don't have a God working in and through me to do that work for me, I will believe the lie. I will pick up the first drink, and I will set the cycle in motion all over again, whether I want to or not. And that is the heaviness of what we're up against in this illness. And, um, and that does two things. Totally freaks me out because <laughs> it's hopeless. And also gives me a tremendous amount of gratitude for the sobriety that I experienced today. Um, because it really had nothing to do with me. It's absolutely a gift. Um, the term recovered alcoholic uh, rubs so many people the wrong way, but I'm all about it. I love it because it's not a testament of how awesome I am that I'm recovered. It's, it's a testament to the power of God, hands down, period. Because if I just told you that I was powerless over alcohol and I couldn't do a single thing, to prevent myself from picking up a drink and putting it into my body and then from getting really, really drunk. And then to say that I'm a recovered alcoholic and this obsession to drink has been lifted and I had a, and I had a really good day. It's like that power didn't come from me. So who's responsible for that? This amazing, awesome God that I've been introduced to, you know, as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous and the beautiful people in it, um, which I also want to thank all of you guys for coming to this meeting on a weekly basis and making it happen and for all of the people who have ever spoken at Feet First because you guys and them have been tremendously important to my sobriety. Just incredible um, because, you know, I went through a couple years sober where I was not as centered in the literature as I am today and I did stay sober and I did try my best to work the steps that they were given to me and I did pray a lot but I was so much more reliant on fear than I was on God.
And it got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I felt really like a, like a machine without oil in its hinges. And I was not okay. And a lot of that spiritual malady started, I mean, a lot of it never really went anywhere, but like, a lot of it started to come back up again. And it was like, I felt like it was only a matter of time, you know? And, and I was starting to feel so um, unmanageable and so unbearable in my experience again. And my father uh, was at a picnic here, I think last summer, and he heard Dave P. from Boston speak. And he said, Sarah, oh my God, you gotta hear this speaker. I gotta send you this link. And I heard Dave P. And it was, I was for for months. I was going around quoting Dave P. for months. And I was like, my favorite speaker. You gotta hear him. Sending people links. I'm like a Dave P. fanatic. I got a T-shirt and a foam finger. Um, <laughs> it just, it just hit me. It just hit me when he talked about what the drink was doing to him. It was doing to his friends. It was getting them drunk. But what it was doing for him, it was doing something else. It was setting him free. You know, this world that otherwise terrified him, he was walking smooth with a drink in his hand, and that's my story. So it's just the way that, like, we deep, like we don't understand how much of an impact we have on each other. Like, we help each other in this program so so deeply um, with our experiences and our, you know, our just the way that we relate to each other and the comfort that I, the comfort, I'm at a place in my sobriety right now where the comfort that I seek from you guys, from understanding, and you guys all reassure me that I'm not an idiot. All the time I have this like huge fear that I'm an idiot and I'm going to like fool myself and I'm a big phony and I'm like, none of this is real and and I'm just going to end up like ruining my life because I'm going to like trust something that's not true. Um, the The comfort that I get from you guys that I'm not really an idiot, my sponsor suggested that I try to pray more about having that, you know, in my relation with God, you know, that uh, I could get that same comfort from God that I get from you guys. But from right now, you know, you guys really, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous are incredible and we really do help each other. So I, you know, found Dave P and I started listening to the Feet First Speakers like every week. And, you know, from a girl um, that was not so centered in the literature, the thing that it did was it, it really opened my eyes and I started feeling like there was something going on here in AA that I didn't really know about. And um, I remember, I remember uh, the first time that that happened. Um, I was sitting in a meeting, and and the topic of the meeting was think the drink through. And uh, it was a it was a newcomer meeting. It was a the format was very interesting. But one one speaker speaks for four weeks, and they each week they pick a different newcomer topic. And this topic was think the drink through. And for some reason, I turned to I turned to my homegirl next to me, and I said. What do you think about that? And she very calmly and quietly, not in a divisive or, you know, egotistical way, she turned over and she said, I think it contradicts everything in our literature. And I was like, whoa, what is that? what's that about? And, um, and so that kind of, like, started me <clears throat> on the search to find out what, what the real message of Alcoholics Anonymous was because I felt like I had missed some of it, and I really wanted to know what it was. So where do I go from there? I... Um, yeah, my drinking was a mess. Um, it was just absolutely a mess. I, I felt awful about myself when I was growing up. I had all of those like internal like funky feelings. I just felt totally separate. If I could if I could put it in a word, it would be separate. I felt separated from everyone and everything good. And um and I really hated myself and I really hated uh just everybody. And uh I just was you know really uncomfortable and I always had a strange relationship to alcohol. Um I really wanted to be seen as the girl with the drink in her hand or the girl that could drink or could do whatever. Um from a very early age I wanted to be associated with that kind of stuff. Like I remember at family dinners I would like take the wine bottle and hide it under my seat. Even though I wasn't drinking it, I wanted my family to see that I knew what the wine was, you know? And that and that I don't know what I wanted to do. That was like a really weird thing to do, but but that's what I did. And uh and you know, eventually like um I just I was just always looking for like outside stuff to to fill me up, to make me feel better. And uh you know, the first thing that happened was I found out if I walked down a certain avenue I would get, you know, attention from guys that stood on the corner. And um and I was uh, 12 years old and I started dating the 18-year-old crack dealer from the neighborhood, um Shining Star. And um and I was with him for two for two years. I mean, like I had my first dysfunctional long-term like relationship, like at 12 years old, with a with a crack with a man who sold crack who was six years older than I was. I mean, it was just totally a wreck, you know, totally a wreck. And I was doing anything that I could to fix the way that I felt inside. And he would uh, he would get drunk and high and come over and watch SpongeBob. <laughs> and he was watching SpongeBob because he was under the influence. I was watching SpongeBob because I was 12 years old. <laughs> and and. Um, <laughs> And um, 
And, you know, I thought it looked fun. I thought it looked fun. I've said that before, by the way. It's, it's an old trick. Um, so uh, I thought it looked fun. So I asked this person to introduce me to the substance that was making him feel so much better than I felt. And um, I didn't know how to drink. I didn't know how to do whatever. Um, I was, like, not really getting drunk, not really feeling the effects, but I had this strange determination. I was like, I know there is more to this than what I am experiencing, and I will find out what it is, people. And the first time I ever felt the full influence uh, of alcohol, I was 14 years old, and I had that magical, you know, epiphany where I was drinking enough red wine to actually catch a buzz, and I sunk back into my body, and I couldn't believe it, and I said, I knew it. I knew <laughs> that there was something amazing in these bottles, and I do. It was just a matter of time. I just had to find it, and I made that subconscious choice that we all make that I was going to feel that way and do that as often as I could for the rest of my life because it was the only thing I had ever found that actually in an out-of-body experience took me away from the problem. And the problem, as I have already stated, is me and my stone-cold sober condition. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, it was a wreck. I don't even need to say anymore. Like, I dropped out of high school. My, my parents had to drive through New York City at 3 o'clock in the morning looking for me because I wouldn't come home when I said I was going to come home. I would curse out my mother. Like, I love the bedevilments on page 52 where it talks about we were having trouble with personal relationships. We were full of fear. And I went, I went through this with my sponsor, like, a couple months ago. I guess, you know, whenever we were going through We Agnostics um, more than a couple months ago. And I, I was like, sponsor, I... I kind of still have some of these. Like, is, is that okay? Like, and he was just like, Sarah, he was like, oh, we all got some of this. He was like, the thing is, it's so much, it's of such a different nature than it was before. And so it's like my problems with personal relationships that I was having back then is that I was pregnant at 13 years old. I was cursing out my mother on a regular basis. I wasn't coming home when I said I was going to come home. And, uh, and I had only interest in you guys if you had something to give to me. And I really only cared about getting drunk and high. So I was selfish and self-centered to the extreme. The problem that I have with personal relationships today is that, like, the amends that I made to my mother and father on this last round, there wasn't anything really to amend. It was just I sat down and I had a talk with them stating my desire to be a better daughter. And I said, how can I be better to you guys? Like, like how do you feel about our relationship right now? Like, am I... Do I have an accurate perception? Like, what can I do to, to be closer to you and to help you guys feel better as parents? Like, that is a... That is a black and white. <laughs> That's a green and pink. <laughs> I don't know. It's a night and day. Totally different. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was a wreck. And um, I had this moment when I was 15 years old. I woke up. I had had the whole week off from school. And I was, um, I had a cold on Monday. And by the next Monday, I had bronchitis. <laughs> I couldn't get up. I couldn't go back to school. I had just been, like, drinking the whole week and just doing whatever I wanted to do and staying out late and not taking care of myself because when I drink, that's really all I do. I was like, I drink, and I get drunk, and I stay drunk, and I'm fine with that. Um, and, uh, you know, my brother was in my brother was in high school, and he had already left to go to school, and my mom worked from home, and she was in her bedroom typing away. And um, I had this moment of, like, I just felt so stuck, like severe stuckness. <laughs> and uh I was possessed with this feeling that, like, my experience of this world would never get any better than what it was right then. I was sick. I was disgusted with my behavior from the past week. Um, I couldn't believe that this is what my life had come to. I didn't know why I couldn't function in society the way other 15-year-olds were. I didn't know why I couldn't show up to school and do class. I went through my, my high school notebooks recently and found my history notebook. And, uh, and um, I was, like, graded on this organization, and my teacher said, Sarah, this is great. It's all clean and organized, but where's the homework? Like, there was no work. There wasn't any notes in it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know why I couldn't show up and function and go to class and play sports and, I don't know, be on a swim team, maybe, like, have, like, a boyfriend my age and, like, hold hands. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't – I couldn't do any of that stuff. I just – it totally astounded me. And um, it's, uh, it's like Bill's story is so profound, and I didn't know that I related to it for a long time, but – this idea um, that his works took him about Wall Street, and by the time that he was finished with the law course, he knew that, like, the law wasn't for him, and the maelstrom of Wall Street had, had him in its grips. Like, like, that's where his ego, like, manifested best, you know, in this, like, in this, like, Wall Street thing. And for me, it's like, by the time that I was 14 years old, I knew that the 
you know, middle class Jewish lifestyle was not for me. <laughs> and the maelstrom of the hood had me in its grips. And, you know, drug dealers and gangsters were my heroes, you know. And out of that, out of that lifestyle, it would commence to force the weapon that would one, one day turn in its fight like a boomerang and all the cut me to ribbons is pretty much what happened, you know. And, uh, and I love that part in, in Bill's story, too, where he talks about um, he developed, first of all, he develops this hobby of golfing and then, he, he's probably never golfed a day in his life, and he sets out to, like, overtake the Tiger Woods in the 1930s. He's going to all of a sudden just pick up a golf club and become better than, like, the best of all golfers of all time. Um, which I saw the movie Freaky Friday when I was 13 years old, and uh, I think it's Lindsay Lohan. She just had this killer guitar solo at the end, and I was like, she's so hot. I need to be like that. And uh, I set out to, you know, pick up guitar, and I was so frustrated that I couldn't just be like her right away. Uh, I would rather just I would rather just use and drink all day, so I like stop lessons. You know what I mean? And he says drink caught up to him, you know, faster than he could come up behind Walter. And he developed the coat of tan that one sees upon the well-to-do. And he also says earlier that he would prove to the world that he was important. So there's this idea of a facade going on, you know. And he obviously, if I have to prove to you I'm important, it's because I don't believe that you think I am, because I don't believe that I am, or I think I'm super important. I need to pretend that I'm super important just to fix that, you know. And this 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 coat of tan, you know, that one sees upon, you know, the people at the golf course, it's like Bill is aware that he's a fraud. And the next line is this amused banker, or this banker uh, watches him with amused skepticism as he, like, you know, whirls the fat checks in. And, and the banker is all the people in my life that knew that I was a fraud, you know, and it's just how much I hated them. Like, people would always be, like, you know, calling me out for trying to be something that I wasn't, you know, and I would just hate them. It would just fill me with, like, that drive, like, that drive to, like, show them that they were wrong. You know, my whole life was about getting people to see me the way that I thought I needed them to see me in order for me to feel okay. And I've learned through the power of God in AA that my job is to love you guys. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter how you think, think of me or what you think about me. I'm not any better than you. I'm not any less than you. And my job is to show up and be of maximum love and service, whether you guys think I'm great, you think I'm ugly, you think I'm fat, you think I'm skinny, you like my hair, you don't like my hair, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's one of the hardest challenges. It's like, if I, especially if I don't think you like me, how can I, how can I love you anyway? You know, and for me, it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of inventory because it's usually a fear-based thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I had that moment of feeling stuck at 15. And, uh, and here's, here's the insanity of alcoholism. I went in, I admitted everything to my mother, I spilled the beans, and uh, I said, I want to go away, I can't do this anymore, I need help. And uh, she says, great, I've been researching places, we're going to get you escorted, but now I guess it'll be a voluntary trip. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and on my way out of her bedroom, the plan had changed. In my mind, it was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't care one bit about the quality of the rest of my life. I said, you know, I'll, you know, I'll keep doing this till I'm, you know, 50 and then I'll come into AA and, you know, it'll be fine. And, um, and, uh, and I really thought that I would just be able to, you know, control how it went. You know, I would be able to start and stop as I please. And, and the insanity set in. And on my way out of her bedroom, I had told myself, okay, I'll just go away for like two or three months, get a little healthy, you know, um, feel a little better. And then I'll come home and I'll drink exactly the way I'm drinking and see all the people that I am hanging out with and do everything exactly the same that I've been doing. But somehow this time it won't be miserable. It won't hurt my family and it won't hurt me. It'll be great. <laughs> and, um... And that's not the way it went down. Um, they, my, my loving parents sent me to an 18-month minimum program, which most people, uh, it took most people an average of two and a half years to complete. And, um, you know, my last test of powerlessness over the substance of alcohol, really, that I needed to hit me was the fact that I was there over a year. No, not over a year, just about a year. Um, I was not taking the steps seriously. I was absolutely full of it. I was just telling everybody what they wanted to hear. Um, I was... You know, I was just totally non-compliant. Um, well, I became totally non-compliant, but I was just compliant at first to get everybody off my back. I didn't actually care about surrender or principles or changing. I didn't understand anything. Um, 
although when I did get there, I was full. I felt so remorseful. I just couldn't believe that I was there. I couldn't believe what I had put my family through, what my life had come to. And I felt really stuck and powerless. And I, and I swore to myself, I really believe if you let me out now, I'll be a good girl, go to school. Then you can pick me up and we can go to the library and do my homework. And then we'll go to the grocery store and get things for dinner. And then we'll come home and make dinner. And then maybe we can play a game or something together. And then if I have any more studying to do, I'll do it. And then I'll go to bed, which apparently was the plan when I, <laughs> when I was to live at my father's house when I was 13 years old and got kicked out of my mom's place. Yeah, I started getting kicked out of my mom's house at like 12. Um, when I got sober, my mother told me that she felt like she was living with a terrorist. Um, and she didn't say a bad kid. She didn't say a monster. She said terrorists. Terrorists blow, uh, drop bombs on countries. Terrorists blow themselves up. That's a, that's a, that's a severe term, you know, and that is, that is what uh, the self-centeredness of alcoholism put my family through. Um, so I had that remorse or whatever, but it didn't matter. This desire to not be this way is not enough if I don't back it with action because almost a year later, I was so miserable and I was so untreated. I wasn't doing anything for my sober condition. I wasn't doing anything for the problem that I was sitting facing a corner and my mind told me that it would be a good idea to get drunk. And um, I believed it and I couldn't wait. And um, I made a plan and I didn't tell anybody and I ran away and I really could. I just was so happy. I was so happy that the drunk was on the way. And the state trooper picked me up two miles later and uh, brought me back to the isolation box. And um, shortly afterward, I said the first prayer that I had said in a long time. And shortly after that, I was banging on my sponsor's door, begging her to tell me what to do. Because I didn't want to be as miserable as I was on that day for another second of my life. And I knew that I wasn't going to survive. That this world was not a place that I was gonna uh, that I was gonna last in if I didn't start doing what the happy people in AA were doing and like embrace this program which is 12 steps of action and and embrace a higher power and just do, I didn't care anymore I just wasn't fighting anymore and I really really believed that I needed help and that really made it possible for me so um, I don't know what time it is I I don't know how much time I have I would I would tell you guys everything but oh 8:34 and this is over at nine cool. Maybe I will tell you guys everything, make you suffer. <laughs> uh, no, I won't do that. Basically, you know, if you look in the big book, um, in Bill's story, uh, I think I've just been like in Bill's story with a couple sponsees recently, so it's like all in my head. But on the on the page that outlines when he went through the steps. Um, if you actually, like, look at each action that he took and figure out which step that was and, like, wrote a little number next to it, it's something like one – or it's something like three, one, two, five, seven, eight, four, eleven, six. It's, it's, it's all wrong, right? It's, like, all out of order. And the thing that I love about that is that um, it's not about, like – I'm sure, like the big book outlines specific instructions for how to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I follow and I love. But it's not about the format. It's not about worship of the format or worship of the literature. You know, it's like it's really about this power that the principles lead us to. Because if I have a treasure map that's leading to a treasure, I'm not going to like worship the map. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to go get that treasure and I'm going to play in it and I'm going to enjoy it. You know, and then I'm going to share it with everybody if I'm in a good spiritual condition. <laughs> and and um, and that, you know, so it's like it's like it doesn't matter. Like Dr. Bob made all of his amends when there was still alcohol in his system. You know, it's like it's really for me like those first couple years in AA, it's like I wasn't given this like specific, you know, line by line um introduction to the big book and and the step process you know but what I did have was a knowledge that my way wasn't going to get me anywhere a belief that I needed God if I was going to be successful in anything that I did and a willingness a hundred percent to see the truth about myself and to share the truth with you and to always grow spiritually and those things were enough to keep me sober and keep me plugged into the center of AA the best that I could until I started feeling really funky this past year and reached out again and got ready again to have a brand new wide open experience. And, um, and I would say that the thing, the thing that I can see most clearly about those years before this past year and this past go through, through the 12 steps was that I was so reliant on fear. 
I was so full of fear. I was relying on fear to keep me sober. I was relying on fear to keep me in AA. I was relying on fear to keep me like a good girl, you know, and I was I was just so fearful all the time and and uh and so full of it, you know. I don't know like I don't know how I made it. Um but I think like I think back behind that fear was like a real true desire to to do this thing because I know that I'm screwed if I don't have Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And and I think that really saved me, but what I found this year is that I really I don't need to be that fearful, you know, and um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to go through how I went through the steps this time, because this year in AA has been really beautiful for me. And it's it's taken a lot of things that were going on in my head prior um, and like trickle them down into into my heart. And so it's not so much language of knowledge. Some of it's the language of knowledge, but it's really become like this this language of experience, you know, and um and I always was like wonder, like, what am I gonna feel better? You know, what am I gonna feel better? And I remember, um, I remember after my fifth step, when like, even if it was just for a couple hours, like, I felt better, and uh, and it was really beautiful. So I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like for me, and and how I how I was able to to become less reliant on fear, not not free of fear, but like less reliant on fear, um, you know, through through the sixth and seventh process, really. So so I. You know, this past year I got this sponsor, and and I, a lot of things got clarified. And, and what was cool about going through the steps this time and going through the big book was, like, getting language for an experience that I was already having. And just I didn't realize it. Like, I didn't know how to talk about it, and I didn't know... I didn't know how to share it with people and and going through the big book again and really like like patching up the holes that I had. Oh, because I I forgot to say this, like I had been going through the steps, you know, prior to this past year. But, you know, I had started on my amends process and then I pretty much put my I closed a notebook. You know, I put my eighth step away and I just and I just stopped, you know, and um, oh, I don't recommend that. There was this period like, I don't know, maybe a year ago. I just crying all the time so emotionally unstable and um I'm definitely like a really highly sensitive person just naturally but I'm so much more stable like today than I was a year ago and I'm so happy about that because I can really like there's not the sense of like urgency and panic that I have all the time with everything anymore it's like I it's like there's so much more spiritual space in between like me and what's going on that like it's I mean it's okay you know and um and, and my sponsor also also tells me that that the address for God is now there's one who has all power. May you find him now. Um, so trying to be more in, in the now is also helpful for me to not try to, like, fix that. Because I'll go in my head, and I'll make all these problems, and I'll try to fix them in my head. And uh, and none of it's real, you know, and it's it's just crazy. Um, so being more present in the moment for what's actually real and what's actually happening has been really helpful. And um, anyway, so, so I sat down, you know, with my sponsor, and I started meeting with him on a regular basis and talking to him a lot. And um, and we started going through the big book, and you know the first, you know uh, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there's a solution to more about alcoholism are all the chapters that outline the problem, you know, and the problem really says that like we're powerless over alcohol, and I just did my best to explain what that mean, what that means, and um, and then we agnostics talks about there's a solution, and for the second step. You know, my sponsor really was clear about the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous lets you choose your own conception of God. And so if you are limiting your conception to one that makes you angry, maybe you should change your conception. (laughs) And it's that easy. Uh, So I've had to do a lot of, like, coming up to things and, like, changing my conception, you know, because, like, if I have the freedom, if I have the freedom to, like, buy any outfit that I want to buy, why would I go buy the most ugliest, uncomfortable outfit in the whole store when I could buy the best one that makes me feel most beautiful and really comfortable? You know, it's kind of, I mean, I'm a 22-year-old girl, so, like, comparing God to shopping probably isn't a big shock, but (laughs) um, God is everything, okay? (laughs) He is or he isn't. So, um, so, uh, so, you know, I wrote out a conception of God and had to kind of, like, change that many times. And my sponsor also made it clear that um, that he would correct me all day long on a fifth step or an eighth step, but my second step was all mine. And uh, there's this beautiful line in We Agnostics that also said, the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. And that 
is as a result of the action that you are going to continue taking in 3 through 12. So this is like an ever-evolving spiritual experience. What has happened to me being a recovered alcoholic is I have entered the world of the spirit, and I've had a psychic change, a transformation as a result of the 12 steps of AA. That does not mean I know how to live in this world of the spirit all the time, and that doesn't mean that I'm done. Uh, it means that I'm in a new place, and now I get to learn how to live here with all you guys, and we get to help each other stay here. And, uh, and it's a much more beautiful experience than the one that I was having before. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was step two. And then pretty much, you know, with the question, like, um, are you now willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? I said yes. And then, you know, it's like all you need is, like, a little willingness, like a little mustard seed, and... Uh, and that'll be enough. <laughs> and then two pages later, it's like, God is everything or he is nothing. What's your choice? <laughs> it's like a drastic jump. But, but the way that that was explained to me is that it's like I, I go, it's like I'm going from giving God my drinking to giving God me. And think about all the amazing things. Like if God could, re- could remove the most powerful obsession, you, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard this a hundred times. It's like I would be on my way to school, and then I would think about how much I'd rather get drunk, and then I wouldn't make it to school anymore. It's like this thing would come before every. And I have a good heart. I'm a, I'm a good person. We all are. You know, and this thing would come before everything, and it would just destroy everything. And, um, you know, if that, could, if that could get lifted, then... But think about how awesome every other area in my life could be, too. So, so that's really what that's about. And uh, we went uh, to a park in New York City, um, which is where this, like, archway is, which may be, like, the new and triumphant archway that they reference. I don't know. My sponsor told me some story about Bill walking in and through it on his way to this certain meeting. Um, I was just excited about the fact that we were outside on our knees praying. He said we had to say the third step prayer three times in a row because that's about as long as it would take to get over the fact that we were outside on our knees praying in New York City. Um, so, so I said the prayer, and as soon as, I, as soon as the prayer was out of my mouth for, for the third and final time, I got this voice in, in my head that I heard, and it just said, I'm ready. And I was really excited. And uh, I had had a four step that I had already started working on, and I you know, took it back out, and, and I finished it. And a couple weeks later, um, I shared everything with him. I went to my sponsor's apartment at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday and uh, left at 4 p.m. that same Thursday. And I read every, I mean, I had, just had like a ton of like resentments. And and if anybody is not familiar with what the fourth step is, you know, it's this idea that like, that like, so I'm powerless over alcohol, so I need a power. And it's possible that this power has never, ever been separate from me, even though I thought it was. So if this power really isn't separate from me, then why don't I have any access to it? Even if I believe in it, there's priests, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's people who religiously go to church who come to AA for help because they can't stop drinking. So even if I believe in this power, why is it that I have not, as of yet, been able to tap in and have access? Why haven't I been able to get access from this power so it can actually help me in staying sober? And it's because, you know, this God deep down inside me, if you imagine, like, you know, a channel, like a pathway or a road, and, like, I'm on one end and God is on the other, but it's all kind of, like, in this body that's standing right here in front of you, um, there's all this crud um, standing in, in between me and God. You know, and what that crud is, it's my, you know, self-will, it's my self-centeredness, it's, it's um, you know, and self-manifests itself in various ways. And the, and the major ways for alcoholics are resentments and dishonesties and harmful sex conduct and uh, inconsideration and self-pity and resentment and, and fear. Oh, God, so much fear. Um, and so these are the things that are, like, standing in between me and my higher power. So what I do in step four is I write it all down and I share it with someone. You know, and then I try to become willing to have it be removed because what it's doing in that process is unblocking me from the power that I need. It's like I'm a radio, I'm a stereo radio that's like has all the perfect wiring and it has a battery outlet and it has a plug. And I and I keep using the batteries and the batteries keep draining and running out and I find myself dead. It's like my self-will trying over and over again and it just doesn't work. When all I need to do is somehow realize that there's a plug sticking out of my rear end and jam it into the wall. You know, and so... Then I could have ever-ending, you know, sorry, never-ending flow of energy, and I could always play really good music and just work all the time. And so the 12-step process is like coming, un, like becoming unblocked, so I can realize that, like, I'm, you know, there's another way here, and and that's and that's the process of getting, you know, access to this power. So coming to six and seven, I went to my sponsors 
uh, house, and I read him everything, and he he barely interrupted me. It's probably just because I was so used to taking inventory that it was, like, really thorough um, in terms of, like, the fourth column and stuff, and he... Uh, the first thing he said was, wow, it sounds like you, t- sounds like you take your thoughts <laughs> really seriously. And I was like, yeah, you think? I'm dying over here. <laughs> and, um, and, he, uh, and then he started talking to me about the exact nature of the wrongs. And just, you know, the very simple um, example that I'm going to give is, like, I'm, I'm constantly misdiagnosing the problem. You know, I'm always thinking that the problem is, like, an external thing that's going on in my life or something like that. But, but my sponsor is also very big with me, bringing it back to the idea that when I'm disturbed, the problem is within me. And there's one problem, and it's always spiritual. And there's one solution, and it's always spiritual. And, um, and it's about figuring out, like, what am, what am I disturbed by, you know? So I would think, like, I'm unhappy with my body, you know? Um, I think that I'm overweight. You know, um, or I'm not in the shape that I want to be, um, and I and I tell him that's the problem. And he says, "Well, I mean, if you could highlight the thing that is making you feel most ugh, like what would the exact nature of that disturbance be?" And so I think about it, and I usually give five wrong answers, and then he goes, "Shame. You feel shame of your body, right?" And I go, "Yeah, okay. So that's the first question here in the six and seven exercise. Um, so what's the exact nature of the disturbance? And it's shame." And then he asks me, so what kind of person, you know, who looks like you or who feels overweight or whatever it is would not be ashamed of their body? And I go, well, somebody who doesn't care about being healthy, you know, somebody who doesn't care about, you know, feeling sexy or whatever, um, somebody who doesn't want to look good or feel good about themselves. And he'll go, okay, well, is that the truth about you? And I'm like, no, no, that's not the truth about me at all. And so it's like, Currently, the only evidence that I have that I am the kind of person who wants to be healthy is shame. I am relying upon the presence of shame in my life to point me back to the truth, to remind me that I desire to be healthy. But that desire to be healthy was given to me by God. It is true on its own. And there is absolutely nothing that I could ever do to, uh, to make that uh, any different or change it. And so it's like, it's like, um, it's like shame points me back to the awareness of my heart's true desire. But what I don't realize is that I'm already at my heart's true desire. My desire to be healthy and to take care of my body um, will still be true, even if I stop feeling ashamed. I do not actually need shame in order to confirm that I am the kind of person that wants to be healthy. And this is just the most general example that I figured everybody could relate to because we all seem to have body dysmorphia and we can't see ourselves for how we really look. Um, so, so it's like, so I don't realize, but shame in that sense has become a useless tool of self-reliance. You know, I'm relying on shame to do a job for me. I'm relying on it to, to take me to a place of awareness that I desire to be healthy. So from that point, I can go out and do things like go to the gym or eat a banana or whatever it is. Um, the thing is, if I'm relying on a tool to build a project, I need to always have that tool with me. I need to always have it around. So I actually need to always feel shame. I need to always do things that make me feel ashamed so I can feel the shame, so I can remember that I didn't want to be that way, so I can have this false illusion that there's something for me to do to be different. And, uh, and that's self-reliance, you know, and it's disturbance. It's shame. Shame is a tool of self-reliance. And, um, you know, the God-reliance would be to trust that, like, God has designed me in a way that that's just true about me, just because it is. It's in my heart. There's nothing I could do about it. And I can stop feeling shame. I can, like, intel- I can, like intellectually disconnect shame from what I'm using it for. And I can ask God to replace the shame with an awareness of what's true about me simply because it's true. You know, simply because it's, that's how God made me and God is showing up and God is motivating me to do that. You know, God's power will be the thing that gets me to the gym rather than shame. You know, and that was amazing for me. And it's the same with fear, this fear that, like, I'm not going to do enough in AA. You know, I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing enough. Like, like I'm not doing what these, like, recovered people are doing. Like, I'm just, I'm not good enough yet or whatever it is. Like, I'm not there. All this fear, you know, it's like, it's like, well, what kind of person wouldn't have that fear? Well, somebody who didn't care about staying sober. It's like, well, is that the truth about me? Is that, tr- is that the truth about me? No, it's not. You know, so I actually do not need to rely on fear for all these things that I've been, I've been hiring fear to do this. It's like, it's like the most amazing professional is like doing a job, and they're doing it so amazing. I don't trust it. So I go and I get like 
the worst person that I could ever find that has no experience ever in this field, and I hire them to do it for me over and over and over again. When I don't realize that, like, what I'm, when I'm relying upon fear to do in my life, God is already taken care of. God's already taken care of it. When I can really see that and when I really believe that, like, God was working in and through me in a way that was none of my business and had nothing to do with me, there was nothing I could do to make it different, this need for fear seemed to, to trickle a lot, you know. And that was really powerful for me for like a day and a half. And then, and then I kept on, and then I kept on finding myself extremely disturbed over and over again. I couldn't get undisturbed and all this stuff, but it's just about consistency and practice, you know. And, and I find that the more that I share things with others, you know, the more solidified it becomes in my own life. And, and the closer I am to these things in my consciousness all the time. So, so that was six and seven. And, um, and when I got on my knees in his room and I said the seven step prayer, I had a very clear idea what, what I was giving. To God, or what I was asking God to take away, and it was all these tools of self-reliance. It was fear, shame, anger, envy, and all this stuff. Thanks. That's my dad. <laughs> um, that was probably gonna be really creepy if anybody listens to this recording. My father just got up in the meeting to give me water. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, and I and I could like see how useless all these things that were making me feel so disturbed were, you know, shame and fear and all this stuff. And um and I got on my knees and, you know, I asked for that as well as everything that I had just dumped, you know, and you know, in all the ways and all the the thing about step four and five is that it really helps you to see like what what my old ideas and what my beliefs are that are creating the problem. You know? It's like um I don't know. I would probably have to think about that a little more and then explain it, and I don't have time. But but the fourth and fifth step really helped me to see, like, what are the actions that I'm taking? What are the things that I'm telling myself? And what are my current beliefs that are causing me to be resentful at you? And if I believe something different or if I thought about this this way instead of the way that I'm thinking thinking of it, would I still feel the need to hate you? (laughs) No, I wouldn't. So these are things in me that need to get removed. So I got on my knees and I said the seven-step prayer, and I uh, asked God to take all of it. And uh, I went home that night, and I, you know, went through my fourth step, and I highlighted all the names that I needed to make amends to, and I got out my old eighth step, eighth step, and I compiled them all together. And um, soon after, I started going over it with my sponsor, and I started going out and making amends. And somewhere after starting to make those amends, I noticed that, like, I hadn't broke down crying hysterically for no reason in a long time. And, uh, and things that normally would have been freaking me out. And, I, oh, my gosh, I need to figure out how to do this right now. Or this is a huge problem, and I need to find the answer right now. So let me go talk to everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous to see what they would do about it so I could fix this now so I could feel better. Um, they, like, weren't a big deal. If I thought that there was anything for me to do at all, I was like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow if it still feels like a big deal, you know. Um, it was just incredible. And so where I'm at right now in my sobriety um, – a very full, beautiful life. I just spent the summer up in Saratoga Springs with my boyfriend. I am living. I have a beautiful family that came out here. I want to just thank them for coming and uh, thank Paul and Dave and Owen for getting me up to this podium so I could share my story and be just be part of this meeting with you guys. Um, just like opportunities just, just, you know, just reveal themselves all the time for me to like practice this program for me to have a life, you know, and to have affairs that I could, like, practice the program in. Because sometimes my fear gets the best of me, and I want to just, you know, my ego wants me to be alone, you know. And, and I just want to, like, be really small and not have any risks and not have anything to do, you know what I mean? But other than, like, if that was the case, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a life or affairs to, like, demonstrate how awesome God is, you know, in. And um, and for step 10, I, I know that the directions are, you know, all throughout the day, and I try my best to do that. But in addition, my sponsor and I have a weekly inventory call. And on Tuesday nights, I'll write down all mistakes, uh, resentments, dishonesties, fears, and selfishness throughout the week. And also, um, eighth and ninth step up for consideration, because I had like 65 people on my amends list this time, and I've been just chipping away real steady. It feels so good to be back in the amends process. I really feel so good, guys. And uh, Wednesday mornings at 830. Um I call my sponsor and I share that all with him. And, uh, you know, the 11th step, I try to do uh, morning meditation. And also the nightly review is beautiful. Um, I, I practice step 11 with others. Um, 
I have no problem calling a friend, sharing our nightly reviews together, um, calling people to pray. One of the most beautiful things about being in Sarasota this summer, ECPOT, we, we're the ECPOT host committee, and we're bringing ECPOT, Eastern Area Conference of Young People, to AA, to Saratoga next spring. And, um, and as a host committee, we're doing a lot of spiritual growing um, because we have an awesome prayer and unity chair who is here tonight. So if you need more um, information about this conference, just come see me after. And um, we're doing prayer partners with each other. Um, that rotate every week, you know, and we have a we have a person that we're assigned to that's going to be our prayer partner, and we can do anything we want with this person all throughout the week, and um, and we can call them and pray, or text and pray, or read books together, or whatever it is, and 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 we're really trying to to do more stuff like that as as a committee and to stay spiritually centered. And I'm so grateful for my relationships that I can really just call somebody and pray all the time that I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed or weird to start this talk with a prayer with all you, you know, it's like, it's really awesome. And, um, and, uh, so practicing step 11 with other people. I've also recently um, been dabbling a little bit in A Course in Miracles and also this meditation called How to Listen to God, where you really just conscience write and you just write down everything that's going on and you share it with somebody. And that really helps a person like me filter through all the craziness that's going on in my head all the time, you know, and like really looking at it with somebody and like what, what thoughts seem to be coming from God and like what thoughts seem to be coming from something that's really not God at all. And, um, you know, and uh, and the last thing I'll say in my two minutes here, I can't believe I lasted this long. Um, uh, sponsorship and carrying this message to other alcoholics um, has been so beautiful. And it's really been something that line in a vision for you that says you make sure that your relationship with God is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. All I had to do was get to work with my own sponsor and people started coming out of the woodwork. And apparently I had something to give them. You know, and uh, and probably this, I don't know, I'll admit this, you know, on recording more, more often than not when a sponsee calls, I'm in a position where I don't really want to do it. And um, and sometimes sometimes I'm having a really good day and I'm like, yeah, let's get to work. And uh, and more often than not, I'm like, you know, self-centered. Um, but I show up for these women and, and one guy named John, he's adorable. Um, and uh, and I show up for them, you know, and I help them through the literature the way that I was. And I and instead of just telling them, go pray about that, I'll see. Well, OK, I really don't know what to say right now. Would you like to pray with me? Like, like, let's do this together. Like, thank you for calling me. And, uh, you know, Bill and Lois abandoned themselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping others. And people have just flooded into my life without me having anything to do with it. And I've had the opportunity to carry this message to them and just to try to help them do it because I still need to do everything that I tell other people to do. And it really its so much better to be in a group where we can do it together. And uh, it's 9 p.m., so I'm going to be good and stop talking. Um, everybody, enjoy your Monday night. Thank you so much for having me out to feet first. And I look forward to meeting you after the meeting. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.